We turn now to Romans 8. If you would, I'd invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 8. Lord, as we turn to Your Word, again, we thank You that You speak. Lord, give us ears to hear. Give us hearts to receive. Be with us by Your Spirit in this hour, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, uh, out of reverence for God's Word, I'd invite you to stand. Again, our reading this morning comes from Romans 8, and I'll be beginning in verse 26, and we'll be going through verse 30. Hear now the Word of the Lord. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us, with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this morning, the thrust of our passage is one of encouragement. Encouragement. Uh, This past two weeks, my heart has been somewhat heavy. Recently, I guess this past Monday, we got back from a trip to Northern California. Uh, My wife and our boys, uh, and then my siblings and their families and my parents, we were all down there. And obviously, uh, there in Northern California, the fires are, are raging. And so we were dealing with the smoke. Most of the time, we were indoors because the air quality was so bad. I mention that not because woe was us for our trip, but because the sorrows of this life and of our world were staring me in the face and have sort of lingered and have continued to to just be staring me in the face. Not just those fires, but especially the news with the evacuation from uh, Afghanistan, uh, the flooding in, in Tennessee, Haiti continues to try and recover from the earthquake there. There's so many things happening in our world. And I think that experience of all of that staring us in the face, no doubt that's common for us. Not just these past few months, but these past couple years, I'm sure many times over, all of us have been nearly overwhelmed by what is taking place in our world. But beyond the, the current events as well, beyond the, what is happening globally, I know and have also been close to, very close to recently, just suffering at an individual level. And in our, in our personal lives, we're all going through all sorts of grievous ordeals. And so, uh, I hadn't originally planned on on Romans 8 this morning, but 
The thrust, again, of this passage is encouragement. And so I pray that God will bless us this morning as we turn here to Romans 8. For those of us in in green pastures, too, who may not relate to us, we know that the valley is coming. God gives us both, as we just saw from Psalm 23. You make me lie down in green pastures, and also even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The Lord gives us both. And many of us are are in the green pastures, uh, or at least maybe some of us, and many of us are in the valley. Back in verse 18 of this chapter, as we saw four weeks ago, Paul begins by addressing our current position by speaking of the sufferings of this present time. So there's a sense in which even if we don't feel it acutely, we are all in need of encouragement day after day. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that our text this morning provides us something of that very same answer. Not a 10-step plan to minimize our suffering. Not even a three-step plan. There are no (laughs) commands here in our text. We simply get encouragement in the midst of a time when suffering is inescapable. There are two particular encouragements in our passage this morning. A month ago, the encouragement was to consider the glorious future that awaits us. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul first looks ahead to resurrection, to the renewal of all things. That's what we get to look forward to as Christians. But then this week we get a window into the unseen, into God's working behind the scenes, into the the spiritual realm. And we see God's promise, not only that He is always with us, which is true, but also that He is always contending for us. So two central encouragements, and the first one is this. The Spirit is interceding for us. The Spirit is interceding for us. In verse 26, Paul begins our passage this way, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Now this intercession of the Spirit is no doubt a great and mysterious reality. Can't think of anywhere else in Scripture where this same thing is is spoken about. But we have to believe it's this wonderful gift that the Spirit of God is working on our behalf. And so I want to, to look into this passage and let's seek to mine all the riches that are here. What do we see about the Spirit's intercession? Well, first, we see the why. We see the why. Likewise is how Paul begins in verse 26. And the likewise there is drawing a parallel with what precedes 
In verses 24 and 25, where Paul speaks of the hope of the gospel. And it's clear there that the hope of the gospel has a strengthening effect on our lives. When we consider the hope of new life and resurrection glory, when Christ returns on the clouds, that gives us the ability, Paul says, to wait with patience. And that in the midst of our present suffering. So the gospel strengthens us. And then Paul writes, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. And here in verse 26, Paul turns to consider a particular kind of weakness. For, he continues, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. That's the why. The Spirit helps us in our weakness because we do not know what to pray for as we ought. And we say, well, you know, what about the Lord's Prayer? What about the Psalms? We know something of the basics, right? We're not left without any teaching on prayer and Scripture. So what exactly does, does Paul mean? And I think here we see that he's speaking about the particulars. Right now, Ellen and I are currently in a season of prayer regarding the future and what God has in the days ahead. And the reason we're praying is because we don't know. And so we don't know all the best moves in the here and now we don't know what God has. We don't know the best way to prepare. In this particular place in our lives, we're left in a place of simply not knowing in these particulars. And I think similarly, as we think about others in our lives, we simply don't know always how to pray for them. You know, is it better that that person who's right now wandering from the Lord is it better that they receive some amazing blessing that is clearly from God? That they might turn and say, ah, oh, the greatness, the kindness of God, and that they might have gratitude in their hearts and turn to God in thankfulness? Or is it better that they fall flat on their face, right? That they feel the burn of life and so cry out to God for help. And the truth is we simply don't know most of the time what we should be praying for in the particulars. And here's where we need to see in the text that the Spirit is said to do something that we can't. Again, in verse 26, we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We don't have that crystal ball. But, there's this contrastive word here, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us. And He does so with groanings. We're going to come back to that idea that what is groanings there? But then in verse 27, the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So in our weakness, we don't know what to pray for, but the Spirit prays with perfect knowledge and with perfect intercession according to God's will. And here we're starting to answer the what part of the equation. If, if our weakness is the why, we don't know the what part of the equation. What exactly is the Spirit's intercession? And I think it, it may help to here to think of our lives as a huge puzzle, like made up of a million pieces. And we have no idea what it's supposed to look like when it's done. And so often we don't know which piece goes where. We rarely know where exactly God is taking us, 
or what our needs are going to be along the way. But the Spirit, the Spirit of God, knows all of those things. And He knows exactly how to get the next puzzle piece exactly where it needs to be, whether that's a new direction in our lives, whether that's a particular answer to prayer, whether that's meeting this or that need in the face of temptation or in the face of suffering. The Spirit knows the puzzle and gives us and intercedes for us that God might give us everything we need when we need it. The Spirit prays according to the will of God. And we'll see in a moment that God's will, His purpose, is ultimately our good. And so all of the Spirit's intercession is aimed at our good. The Spirit doesn't just randomly plead with the Father for us and make random requests, but the Spirit intercedes in order to make a perfect puzzle. The puzzle that God intended for our lives, just as it is meant to be. Not always good and easy, but purposeful. And we'll look at that purpose in a moment. And then Douglas Moo, I I wanted to bring him in to just reiterate and to clarify the present point. He writes, Paul is saying then that our failure to know God's will and consequent inability to petition God specifically and assuredly is met by God's Spirit, who Himself expresses to God those intercessory petitions that perfectly match the will of God. When we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. The Spirit knows exactly what we need, when we need it, and intercedes accordingly. So that's the what. The Spirit's help is to intercede, to plead with God according to God's very will. Lastly then, we've looked at the why, the what. We look now at the how. How does the Spirit intercede? And there's two main views here on this question. One is that the Spirit intercedes in and through our own moments of groaning. When we can't find words, when we're in that place of angst and anxiety and words fail us, then in those moments the Spirit steps in and intercedes on our behalf, somehow in and through our own groaning in in those moments. The other view, and I'm going to try and convince you this is the right view, is that the Spirit's intercession is a unique and distinct activity. That perhaps it's alongside us in our lives and and as we pray, but it is independent of what we offer God. The Spirit intercedes for us, even independent of our own prayer. A few reasons here why I think that this is the option that I want us to see. Firstly, the Spirit is the active agent in this passage. Paul says the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That himself, that is an unnecessary pronoun in the English and the Greek. It's there in the Greek. Paul's emphasizing the Spirit himself is doing this activity. 
I want to look at this preposition. The, the nature of intercession is one person doing something on behalf of another person. The Spirit is doing something for us. And there's this preposition in the Greek, pair, And it's used twice in these verses where we see it translated for us in verse 26. And then pair hagion, for the saints in verse 27. And this preposition is not used to signify means or instrumentality. So the Spirit doesn't intercede through us or by us or even in us, but as verse 27 has it, the Spirit intercedes for the saints. And so what's amazing here is that these groanings are actually attributed to the very Spirit of God on behalf of His people. And I think this is a beautiful thing. In Hosea 11.8, this is the language that's used of our God. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. So to speak of the Spirit groaning would not be unnatural. In Ephesians 4, Paul says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. So Scripture often speaks of God in these emotive, passionate terms to try and capture something of the depth of His care and His love for us. And so it's not as if the intercession here only takes place in those moments of deep and inexpressible groaning on our part, right? When the groan meter is high enough, then the Spirit kicks in like the afterburners and, and comes in and says what we can't say. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's much better, in fact, that the Spirit intercedes for us regularly and continually. The Spirit's intercession, we thank God, does not depend on our own prayer life. Just a few verses later in this chapter, in verse 34, Paul will say that Christ is at the right hand of God and indeed interceding for us. And there it's the exact same Greek construction. Just as Christ's intercession is independent of us, so is the Spirit's, and it's continual. Christ is always doing this. The Spirit is always doing this. The Spirit's ministry does not depend on us. And Paul says, He who searches hearts, that is God the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. It's the, it's the mind. It's the Spirit's mind. The Spirit has the mind to intercede. The Father knows the Spirit's groanings because the Father and the Spirit, we know, are one. And of course, this means that the Spirit's intercession is bound to be effective. And I think it may be helpful to think of life not just as a puzzle, but now maybe as a, in the analogy of wartime, right? And we're on mission glory. We're, we're pilgrims trying to get to the celestial city. And thankfully, God has given us this great helper who is 
the wartime expert, right? The, the military strategist who knows all of the best moves along life's way, right? In all of the battles, the Spirit knows everything. But the Spirit isn't just the expert. The Spirit is also the comms guy, right? The Spirit has a direct satellite communication to headquarters, to the Pentagon, and calls in everywhere we face a particular need. The, the Spirit calls in the perfect reinforcements at just the right time. So when you can't pray, when you're not sure anyone else is praying for you, when it's hard to turn to God, when you feel utterly alone, or when fear and anxiety have gripped you and you do not even know how to cry out to God, God's Word promises us this morning that in those moments and always, the Spirit is interceding for us. That's the first encouragement for us this morning. The Spirit of God is interceding for us. Secondly, we know our Heavenly Father's purpose. That's the second encouragement. We know our Heavenly Father's purpose. And there's a few things we know about God's purpose. There's a few subpoints here that I want us to look at. And the first one is that God's purpose is good. God's purpose is good. Now, unlike the confusing verses of 26 and 27, maybe, the claim made here in verse 28 is really quite straightforward. And it's this, and he's speaking with reference to those of us who call on Christ as Lord and Savior, to those who believe. In verse 28, Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Right? And it's hard almost to let that claim sink in because of how great and how big it is. And the thing about this statement is that it's not so hard to comprehend. We get the words. They're they're fairly simple. The thing about the statement is that it's hard for us to believe. In those moments of suffering, in those moments of trial, no doubt many of us, all of us, at various points in our lives, we have perhaps reflected on this text and thought to ourselves, God, even this? How in the world could this possibly be for my good? This text challenges us in our faith. The miscarriage, the relational trials and troubles, the slander at work, losing our job, so many other trials in life. We ask ourselves, God, how this? Why this? There's no way this could be for my good. And we know that suffering is not excluded from view here because, again, if we remember the context of our discussion, starting back in verse 18, Paul's speaking about the sufferings of this present time. And here in verse 28, the Greek text is quite plain. All things work together for good. The joyful things and the sorrowful, the happy days and the sad days In our suffering, in particular, this text can feel nearly impossible to believe, but it's also when we need to believe it most. 
In our time of suffering, God wants us to know, I am for you. And I promise that even this I will work for your good, ultimately. God's purpose is our good. That's the first thing we see. But then the second thing we see is this. God's idea of good may be different than our idea of good. And here I think God's Word challenges us to rearrange the furniture in our hearts. To rearrange the desires and and our loves. And I say that because when we read this passage... What is our default understanding of that central word, good? Right? Is it comfort? Is it ease? Right? A 401k and a a nice retirement? Is it the ideal love life? Is it the perfect family? It's easy for us to define good by our present circumstances and by the, the scales of pleasure versus pain. But here we see in Romans that God hands us new scales. And He teaches us to weigh things by a different balance. Because in verse 29, we get Paul's defense, you might say, for how he can make such an outrageous claim that God works all things together for good. And it's, it's this. He says, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Conformity to Christ. That's the good that Paul is speaking about. It's not comfort. And it's not ongoing pleasure. It's not always happiness and good times. It is conformity to Christ. The end game, the finish line for all of us that God is after is that we might be made like His Son. And everything, Paul says, everything in God's plan, he is somehow mysteriously weaving together toward that end. And so the question for all of us in the face of a text like this is what do our hearts long for most? And Paul further unfolds God's purpose. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so now we have a full statement of the good. Right? And again, it's not our, all our, uh, our having all the nice things in life, but it's our being sons and daughters alongside the Lord Jesus, who is the firstborn among many brothers. So let's pause briefly here, because this is one of the real gold mines of this text. In Colossians... Jesus is said to be the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. There's that word firstborn. Jesus is the beginning not only of all things, but He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And so He's speaking there of a a new creation. That's what Paul is talking about, the firstborn from the dead. After living a life of perfect obedience and then of suffering on the cross on our behalf, Christ was given His reward. He received from the Father what is now also our inheritance to share in, and that is nothing less than resurrection life, which Christ now gives to all who trust in Him. We know that when we trust in Jesus, we not only get the forgiveness of sins, 
but we also get new life in His Spirit. And not only that, but one day we will live in glory with Jesus forever. That is the promise of the Gospel. And in this way, Jesus will be the firstborn among many brothers. This is God's ultimate purpose, and this is our good, to be made sons and daughters and to receive that eternal inheritance. So let me just say, if you're here this morning, or if you're watching online, and you have not yet trusted in the Lord Jesus for this great gift, if you have not yet repented of your sins and seen God's righteousness and seen your need of His mercy, and of the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. Please turn. God's Word is always inviting us, is always calling us to Himself, and this morning there is no exception to that. The gift of being made like Christ is extended to all. The offer is made to all. So turn and believe. All things work together for good for God's children. And it's in this way that we start to understand this passage and how Paul identifies Christians here. In verse 28, we see that we are those who love God. And secondly, we are those who are called according to His purpose. By the help of God's Spirit, we Christians love God above even our own earthly comfort. And we long for His ultimate plan to be realized. And so as long as the, the trials in our life, all the things that we want so badly to end, even in the face of those, even in our suffering, we can say, God, yes, I trust that this too somehow, even if I can't see it, I know that somehow you are leading me to glory. Now, suffering can work for our good. We see in Scripture in various ways. Sometimes our suffering is God calling us away from sin. In Psalm 39, we read this, When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Sometimes God uses pain and loss to try and get our attention. And this is His kindness to us. So in Psalm 119, the psalmist says, I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. In faithfulness you have afflicted me. Who says that kind of thing? Right? And it's only the person who understands that even in hardship, God may be working on our behalf. Sometimes our suffering is God protecting us and keeping us from sin causing us to depend more on Him. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12 that he prayed three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. And we don't know exactly what it was. It may have been demonic harassment. It may have been a physical ailment, perhaps his, his bad eyesight. But either way, what was God's answer to him? And here's what we read. Three times, Paul says, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul continues, and he says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses 
so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And listen to this. This is quite stunning. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We see time and time again that God is not absent from suffering, but He is in fact using suffering, using our sorrows, using the hardships, the trials, the tears to strengthen us, to bring us closer to Himself, to refine our hearts that He might be our final reward, that we might say, yes, God, even when this is taken away, I will still follow You. When we lose things, right, what do we that are precious to us? I think many of us have that experience. We, we cry out to God in those painful moments in life. We're driven to our knees. So God makes even suffering to serve our good, which is conformity to Christ. So that's the second point. The first is our Father's purpose is our good. Secondly, our Father's purpose is conformity to His Son. And then lastly, the third sub-point, the Father's purpose is certain. When God plans for a person to share in Christ's glory, right? there is no unwriting that plan. It will come to pass. In verses 29 through 30, we get something which pastors and theologians for a few hundred years now have called the golden chain. Uh, I think it started perhaps with the 16th century pastor, William Perkins. He has a little book called A Golden Chain. I don't know if he got it from, from somewhere else, but the reason it's called A Golden Chain is because on the one hand, it's this package deal. If you get the first link, then you get all the other links with it. It's a chain. It comes together. But then the reason it's called golden is because it's comforting to us. It's comforting to us to realize that God doesn't start something that He doesn't finish. If God has called us to Christ, He will finish His work. So let's look at this chain briefly. It's not too hard to see. Uh, It starts in verse 29. Paul says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. And then skipping a few words to verse 30, he says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now in the Greek, there's two pronouns actually in each clause. So that a, a more literal reading might be, And those whom he predestined, these he also called. And those whom he called, these he also justified. And so on. Paul is trying to make it abundantly clear in how he writes this, that if God foreknew you, if He predestined you and has called you to His Son, He will one day glorify you. And it's so certain that he puts it in the past tense. It's it's as sure as if it has already happened. And if we had more time, we would do a fun study of each of these big words and all that Paul has to say about foreknowledge and predestination and calling, etc. But here I want simply to point out that it starts with foreknowledge. And in Scripture, there's two kinds of foreknowledge. There's a kind of foreknowledge by which God knows 
everything that comes to pass in advance because he wrote the story. It's like the author reading his own novel. He knows what's coming. But then there's a second kind of foreknowledge and a kind of knowing that is more intimate, that speaks to God's special love and special affection by which he has chosen a people for himself and made them his very own. From eternity past, God has looked and said, these people, I will call them to myself in my son. That's the second kind of foreknowledge. And here Paul is speaking about the second. God doesn't love us because we first believed in him, but we see here that we believe in God because he first loved us. In Ephesians 1, it says, In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. And the end of our adoption is that glorification with Christ. What we need this morning is to know that as we trust in the Lord Jesus, our future is certain. If you're listening this morning and you don't trust in Jesus, again, please grab me afterwards. Grab one of the elders. Grab a Christian that you know and talk to them about why it is that we believe in the Lord Jesus for not only this life, but for eternity. That is ultimately what's at stake. And for those of us who confess Christ, the aim here is to be encouraged. In just a moment for our profession of faith, we'll be reading together something of a longer section than the next few verses here in Romans. And I want to read just a couple of those verses because this is where Paul takes all of this. In the next two verses in Romans 8, after our passage, this is what the Spirit says to us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's got to be one of my favorite verses. It's this wonderful argument from the greater to the lesser. If God has already sent His one and only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us, He has given us the most precious gift He can possibly give, namely Himself. How can we think that God will withhold any good thing from us, anything which is truly good, anything which is going to contribute to our eternal salvation. That is our hope this morning, not comfort in this life, though surely we pray that God gives us strength and respite along life's hard way, but the comfort is that if God is for us, who in the end can ultimately be against us? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you know our deep, deep needs. God, you know the hearts of each and every one of us. You know our prayers from this past week, from this past month, God. Some of us, prayers that we have offered you for years. Lord, would you supply everything we need 
to keep trusting in the Lord Jesus, to keep walking in His way, to remain faithful to You and to Your Word. Spirit, give us strength not to grieve You, but to walk in joyful obedience, God, even as we find ourselves in the valley, to know that even there You are with us. God, be with us this day. Help us to sing Your praises, to reflect on Your goodness, and to rest, to find comfort and encouragement in the great things we have considered here and the great things that You have spoken to us by Your Word. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.